0: Uh-huh. worldwide not just only for the nation a radical guide it's time to make changes Bring in interviews and radical education yeah, yeah. welcome to a radical a podcast you too, really your gateway to transformative ideas global movements and the trailblazing voices that dare to challenge the status quo for a more equitable and inclusive world i'm your host jason Bayless, and i couldn't be happier that you've tuned in get ready for an eye-opening conversation that aims to do more than just inform It's about igniting change. Today's episode, we have an array of topics that, while diverse, all orbit around the central theme of challenging entrenched power structures that perpetuate injustice and inequality. In our anarchist and radical news segment, we'll dissect an incisive article from The Ecologist by Rebecca Spear Cole titled Greenwashing Turbocharged. We're not just scratching the surface here. We'll examine the complex tricks of corporate dishonesty especially within the oil sector. Next, in resistance around the world, we turn our focus to an often under-emphasized but critically important issue facing many social movements, the risk of resistance efforts being subtly co-opted by capitalist forces. Then, we transition to About a Radical Guide where we spotlight WACA, short for the Whistleblowers, Activists, and Communities Alliance. Born from the spirit of grassroots activism, Wakia is a living testament to what communities can achieve when they unite. We've got a packed agenda, and I'm excited to embark on this journey with you. As always, we aim to do more than inform. We aim to ignite your passion, challenge your preconceptions, and hopefully inspire you to take that next step in your own activist journey. Strap in, folks. There's a rich tapestry of topics ahead, and we guarantee a journey that's as intellectually stimulating as it is participatory. Let's go. Our focus in this segment is a deeply revealing article titled "Greenwashing Turbocharged" by Rebecca Spearcole, published in the Ecologist. This isn't just another piece on corporate lip service to environmental concerns. It unpacks the extensive web of deceit spun by major oil companies like Shell and BP. We've been sold a narrative that these corporate giants are suddenly the bastions of green energy, but let's take a closer look. Shell proudly declared a renewable capacity of 6.4 gigawatts for 2022. Dig a little deeper and you'll see that a significant chunk of this is from plants that aren't even operational yet. It's like counting your chickens before they're hatched. Only these chickens could drastically affect the future of our planet. According to research commissioned by Greenpeace, Shell and BP generated just 0.02% and 0.17% of their energy from renewable sources, respectively. Now, those numbers are not just low, they are abysmal. So how can companies get away with such blatant deception? In a word, governance. Current regulations, or the lack thereof, are the enablers here. When governments fail to impose stringent requirements on these corporations, they are essentially handing them a free pass to perpetuate a status quo that is speeding up climate change. The article posits the idea of taxing the profits of fossil fuel companies to fund the shift toward more sustainable energy solutions. And why not? If you're going to make a mess, you should contribute significantly to the cleanup. The article doesn't just stop at crunching numbers or calling for policy changes. It strikes at the very core of our collective ethical responsibility. What we are witnessing is not merely a lack of corporate responsibility. It's a social justice issue. The actions or inactions of these corporations disproportionately impact marginalized communities who bear the brunt of climate change's devastating effects. As we reflect on this expose by Rebecca Spear Cole, it's essential to keep in mind that the questions raised here are not just a flash in the pan. They're a primer for what's coming up later in this episode, where we'll explore how capitalism and capitalist interests co-opt activists and communities of resistance. Understanding corporate greenwashing and its intricacies sets the stage for us to delve deeper into how systems of power manipulate activism and resistance communities. So let's ponder on these questions now, not just as isolated queries, but as segues into a broader discussion that will unfold as we move along. Corporate accountability. With that in mind, let's think about mechanisms of accountability. Boycotts have their merits, but they're not the be all end all. How can we bring these corporations to task through other avenues? Are lawsuits or targeted shareholder activism viable alternatives that can produce tangible results? Governmental role. Given the upcoming focus, we should also consider how legislation fits into this complex puzzle. If we want to counteract capitalist interests that co-opt resistance, What kind of laws could help ensure corporate transparency and genuine sustainability? Are we talking about mandatory third-party audits, stricter emission standards, or perhaps a more radical overhaul? Public awareness. Lastly, how do we break down the walls of misinformation? It's not just about critiquing corporate narratives, but also about understanding how these narratives are tools in a larger mechanism designed to stifle activism and dissent. Independent media and grassroots movements have a role But should we also be thinking about educational initiatives or public campaigns that go beyond traditional media channels? In wrapping up this segment, the article Greenwashing Turbocharged serves as an essential starting point. It forces us to confront not only the duplicity of corporate environmentalism, but also the broader strategies used by capitalist interests to pacify and co-opt activism and resistance. It's an invitation, really, to not only question what we're told, but also to scrutinize who is doing the telling and what their motives might be. So as we navigate through the rest of this episode, keep these questions in mind. They'll help to frame our subsequent discussions and encourage us to examine how power dynamics infiltrate even the most well-intentioned efforts to bring about change. Ultimately, knowledge and critical thought are our most effective tools for dismantling the systems that seek to silence us. A radical guide that's, what this, that's is, what this is. Highlighting the diverse world of resistance. In this week's segment of Resistance Around the World, we spotlight the struggles, strategies, and successes of activists across the globe. Today, we've got an especially thought-provoking topic on the docket, the co-optation of resistance movements by capitalist forces. This subject often lurks in the shadows, but its implications stretch far and wide, impacting almost every movement aiming for social change. In layman's terms, we're diving into how capitalism has this knack for sneaking in to absorb, dilute, or even hijack the efforts of those challenging or overhauling the system itself. You might be asking, why should I care? Aren't small wins still victories? It's a fair question. And at first glance, the answer might seem straightforward. However, when we look closer, we find that the waters here are murkier than they appear. Let's ground this with some tangible examples. Say you're actively fighting against climate change. Out of the blue, a significant oil corporation unfurls a high-profile marketing campaign, boasting its commitment to sustainability. The ad visuals are glossy, the messaging seems committed, but scratched beneath the surface, and you'll find only a minuscule slice of their profits are funneled into genuine clean energy projects. Similarly, consider the commercialization of Pride events a celebration and struggle for lgbtq plus rights turned into a kaleidoscope of rainbow merchandise sold by companies with potentially murky equality stances it's in these very situations that the danger manifests our radical visions the transformative core of social movements, risk being diluted into catchy but empty buzzwords. What was initially a call to dismantle or reform oppressive structures gets overshadowed by a capitalist agenda that masterfully mimics the language but fails to capture the spirit of the cause. That's why understanding the ins and outs of cooptation isn't a mere intellectual exercise. It's a necessity for anyone committed to catalyzing true social change. We must be eternally vigilant, continually educating ourselves to understand the subtle yet profound ways co-optation undermines the essence of resistance. In today's segment, we'll be navigating through the following key points. Real world instances where capitalist forces have co-opted resistance movements. The subtle mechanisms by which this co-optation occurs. The impact of co-optation on the effectiveness and aims of resistance movements strategies to identify and counteract this co-optation. All right, let's put the terms capitalism and cooptation under the microscope. They're terms we throw around often, especially in activist circles, but fully grasping their intricacies is crucial for understanding the landscape we're navigating. Capitalism, fundamentally, is an economic framework where private entities own the means of production, focusing predominantly on accumulating capital or wealth. It's an adaptable system that places social welfare and equality in a secondary role to competition and profit. It's not just a financial architecture. It's a social one that can incorporate, dilute, and even repurpose elements that stand in opposition to it. Having set the stage with capitalism, let's zero in on co-optation. This mechanism allows capitalist entities to bring aspects of social or political movements into their fold often stripping them of their transformative capabilities. Angela Davis got right to the point in her pioneering work, Women, Race, and Class, when she observed, capitalist systems have a long history of taking radical ideas and turning them into commodities. This astute observation sheds light on the inherently transactional nature of co-optation within a capitalist context. To elaborate, Angela Davis points out that corporations often adopt the aesthetics of activism, think green logos and sustainability reports, but fall short on enacting genuine change that aligns with the goals of environmental or social justice movements. In essence, co-optation within the capitalist environment doesn't merely dilute activism. It often commodifies it, turning it into another product in the marketplace of ideas and causes. Capitalism's affinity for co-optation has historical roots. From the labor movements of the early 20th century to various civil rights struggles, History has shown us that capitalism can be remarkably effective at neutralizing movements just when they seem to be gaining momentum. Labor unions, for instance, were occasionally tolerated, but under conditions that made them largely impotent as agents for transformative change. In today's world, this dynamic persists, manifesting in different domains. Tech companies may publicize their diversity and inclusion initiatives, but continue exploitative labor practices. Likewise, fashion brands flaunting their sustainable lines often do so more as a PR exercise than as a commitment to genuine environmental sustainability. Co-optation in capitalism isn't a mere tactical move. It's a structural feature aimed at self-preservation. It works to absorb the rhetoric, energy, and sometimes even the visuals of resistance and reform, Repackaging them in a way that leaves the systemic issues we're fighting against largely untouched. Recognizing this inherent trait is a necessary first step for anyone committed to instigating genuine social change. Understanding the mechanism of co-optation within capitalism equips us to better dissect its manifestations in various social movements. These aren't isolated instances, but patterns that recur across different spheres, each with its own unique nuances. Let's walk through some classic examples to see how this plays out. When discussing greenwashing, which is a tactic where a company gives a false impression of being more environmentally friendly than it is, BP, British Petroleum, stands out as a prime example. In 2000, they launched a $200 million marketing campaign to rebrand themselves as Beyond Petroleum, complete with a sunflower logo. This seemed like a shift toward eco-friendliness, but the Deepwater Horizon oil spill a decade later revealed the hollowness of this rebranding. The term greenwashing here pinpoints the misleading environmental image that BP constructed. One of the slickest examples of narrative manipulation comes from none other than the oil industry. It may shock you to know that the concept of the carbon footprint, which many of us use to measure our personal environmental impact, was not the creation of an environmental organization, but an invention by an advertising agency hired by BP, one of the world's largest oil companies. It's a classic maneuver. A powerful corporation diverts attention from its colossal role in climate change by placing the burden on individual behavior. In the early 2000s, BP rolled out a carbon footprint calculator, encouraging people to assess how their daily activities, be it commuting, shopping, or even traveling, contribute to global warming. What this did effectively was divert the discourse. Instead of focusing on the systematic industrial scale pollution that companies like BP contribute, the conversation suddenly became about whether or not you, yes you, recycled your trash or rode a bike to work. It's akin to a magician's sleight of hand While you're busy calculating how much carbon your grocery shopping emits, BP and others continue to engage in practices that have a far more catastrophic impact on the environment. Now, don't get it twisted. Individual responsibility isn't meaningless, but it is disingenuous to imply that if each person just does their part, we can halt or even reverse the damage that decades of corporate pollution and exploitation have wrought. We are looking at a situation that requires radical collective action at every scale from local initiatives to global treaties. The personal virtue that is so often promoted from reducing your own carbon footprint to making ethical consumer choices isn't going to cut it. So when you hear terms like carbon footprint, it's vital to ask, who benefits from framing the issue this way? Is it enabling meaningful action or is it a form of distraction that lets the real culprits off the hook? Now, let's discuss allyship and its performative variant. Allyship refers to active support from someone outside a marginalized group. Performative allyship describes superficial or self-serving support that doesn't bring about meaningful change. Companies posting Black Lives Matter on social media while not taking concrete steps to address systemic inequality are examples of performative allyship. It looks like solidarity but lacks the substance and commitment needed to drive social change. Let's talk about the lean-in phenomenon. As another example, it's helpful to understand that this term comes from a 2013 book by Sheryl Sandberg that advises women to be more assertive in the corporate world. While it seems empowering, it has been critiqued for focusing on individual actions rather than systemic barriers. So when companies use lean-in workshops as their primary gender equity strategy, they're essentially endorsing a kind of feminism that adapts to existing inequalities instead of challenging them. By combining term definitions with concrete instances, we're providing both the vocabulary and the lived examples to deeply understand the subversive tactics capitalism employs. These aren't just buzzwords. They're mechanisms by which capitalism dilutes and often commodifies genuine struggles for social and environmental justice. And knowing that is the first step in subverting those very mechanisms. Now, we will focus on scrutinizing two ostensibly paradoxical phenomena, conscious capitalism and the nonprofit industrial complex. These are concepts that present themselves as the enlightened face of modern society. They promise an ethical roadmap in the labyrinth of globalization, corporate hegemony, and social inequality. But do they deliver on these promises, or do they serve as convenient masks, veiling the structural issues that pervade our world? This is not just an intellectual exercise, but an urgent inquiry. As we peel back the layers, we will probe into the real-world implications, case studies, and the often inconvenient truths lurking beneath well-marketed labels. Strap in. This is gonna be a journey of dismantling illusions and confronting hard realities. Let's start with the unforgettable scenes from Seattle in 1999 and Genoa in 2001. The clattering sounds of tear gas canisters echoed through the streets as environmentalists, labor unionists and indigenous rights activists coalesced in a powerful critique of neoliberal globalization. Those moments defined an era and propelled serious conversations about the world economic system. They also set the stage for capitalism's next chess move, enter ethical capitalism. I want to pause here to ensure we don't go down the rabbit hole of jargon and define a term we just used, neoliberal globalization. In simple terms, neoliberal globalization refers to the spread of free market capitalism worldwide. This often includes policies like reducing trade barriers, privatizing public services, and cutting down on government regulations. The rise of ethical capitalism and conscious capitalism in the last two decades is intriguing. Companies like Whole Foods and Tom's Shoes have emerged as the poster children of this approach, advocating a capitalism that purports to care about more than just profits. Yet, if we examine this closely, there are significant cracks in this facade. Firstly, conscious consumerism, a key tenet of this movement, transforms activism into a market transaction. Remember the conflict-free diamonds? Consumers can buy these diamonds and feel good, but this does little to address the deeper systemic issues tied to diamond mining, like colonial exploitation and labor rights abuses. It's as if capitalism has found a way to sell us our own conscience back, turning ethics into a purchasable commodity while the broader structures remain untouched. In the chocolate industry, certification labels like Fairtrade and UTZ are prevalent. A third of all cocoa has some form of certification, giving the consumer a feeling of ethical correctness. But here's the kicker. Inspectors visit less than 10% of cocoa farms, and their audits are often announced in advance. This means that issues like child labor can be conveniently swept under the rug, waiting for the inspector to leave. It's more than just an oversight. Certifiers themselves say there is no guarantee We don't use the word guarantee. This lack of assurance is an open secret in the industry. In some cases, certified cocoa farms had worse labor conditions than non-certified farms, thereby exposing the shortcomings of these ethical labels as mere marketing tools. Let's turn our attention to the nonprofit industrial complex. But first, let's understand what we mean by the nonprofit industrial complex. This term refers to the vast network of organizations that are ostensibly geared toward social justice objectives, but find themselves inherently bound by the limitations of donor funding, governmental support, and public opinion. Their noble cause gets entangled in a web of bureaucracy, report submissions, and grant cycles. One of the most challenging aspects for nonprofits is the perpetual search for funding. While grants, philanthropy, and government funds keep the operations running, they also serve as invisible puppet strings. With resources coming from capital-heavy entities, sometimes with their own agenda, the nonprofit's mission can subtly shift towards more fundable activities. We're talking about projects that show immediate quantifiable results, things that look great in an annual report, but may not necessarily address root causes. Let's consider clean water projects in sub-Saharan Africa, often facilitated by well-meaning nonprofits. These initiatives often construct wells in impoverished villages. On the surface, this appears as an altruistic endeavor. Who could argue against clean water? However, on closer inspection, many of these wells break down after a few years, and there is seldom infrastructure for their maintenance. Moreover, these projects don't often engage with questions of why access to clean water is a problem in the first place whether it's systemic issues, governance, or economic disparities. Nonprofits often function on a project basis, which can lead to what some experts call the projectification of social justice. In a race to deliver measurable outcomes, these organizations may piecemeal complex social issues into smaller, manageable projects, losing sight of the larger systemic issues. For example, a nonprofit focused on education might distribute free books to underprivileged children, which is noble but overlooks systemic issues like why these children lack resources in the first place. Another contentious issue is the rise of microloan projects aimed at empowering people in developing countries to become entrepreneurs. The idea sounds progressive. Give a small loan to someone to start a business and escape poverty. However, what's often left out of the brochure is the fact that these loans come with interest rates that could be predatory and they can lead to a cycle of indebtedness that further entrenches poverty. The nonprofit industrial complex has also been criticized for perpetuating a sort of white savior complex where Western organizations, often led by individuals who do not share the cultural or lived experience of those they seek to help, impose what they believe to be best practices without adequate understanding or respect for the communities they enter. As we navigate the intricacies of the nonprofit industrial complex, it's useful to remember this observation from late historian Howard Zinn. You can't be neutral on a moving train. It's a reminder that good intentions are not enough. One must be critically engaged with the complexities and implications of one's actions. The nonprofit industrial complex is more than a set of well-intentioned organizations. It's a layered, intricate system that finds itself uncomfortably situated within the neoliberal order it often claims to fight against. While the goal is social justice, the machinery often perpetuates the status quo, offering short term solutions that may look good on paper but fail to address the entrenched systems of inequality. Once again, I would like to take a moment to define jargon the term neoliberal order. This term essentially speaks to the current dominant system that is built on neoliberal principles. It governs how countries, corporations, and even social institutions like schools and hospitals operate, focusing on market efficiency, privatization, and deregulation as the path to prosperity. Nonprofits don't have shareholders demanding quarterly reports. In place of this, ideally, you'd have a robust system of checks and balances to ensure that funds and resources are being deployed efficiently and ethically. Unfortunately, this is not always the case. Some nonprofits are notorious for opaque operations, misallocation of resources, and in some instances, financial malfeasance. Let's take the example of the Wounded Warrior Project, which came under scrutiny for excessive spending on lavish staff retreats. Despite its laudable mission to help injured veterans, questions arose about the ratio of spending on actual charitable work versus administrative costs. Governance is another critical factor. Many nonprofits are run by boards that may be well-meaning, but are sometimes plagued by nepotism, lack of expertise in the field, or insufficient engagement with the issues at hand. There's also the issue of founder's syndrome, where a charismatic founder's influence over the organization can lead to a lack of objective oversight. Governance structures that are not robustly designed can allow for decision-making that serves the interests of a limited group rather than the broader mission the nonprofit claims to serve. The complexity of impact measurement in nonprofit work also contributes to a lack of accountability. Unlike in a for-profit environment where ROI, return on investment, can be clearly defined and measured, many nonprofits operate in fields where outcomes are long-term and difficult to quantify. In the absence of clear metrics, it becomes easier for organizations to make grandiose claims without adequate validation. This void often gets filled with success theater, narratives and stories that look good, but may not offer a comprehensive picture of the actual impact or the effectiveness of the interventions. Donor influence is another facet that can compromise a nonprofit's integrity and accountability. Large donors may have the capacity to steer an organization's agenda, sometimes in ways that are more aligned with the donor's interests than the community the nonprofit is supposed to serve. This creates a skewed power dynamic that can have tangible repercussions on the ground. And let's not overlook the regulatory environment. In many jurisdictions, the legal framework that governs nonprofit operations is either weak or outdated, lacking stringent penalties for malpractice. Even in countries with better regulations, enforcement is often patchy, allowing for significant leeway in how nonprofits operate. While these problems are prevalent, they're not universal. There are also numerous nonprofits that operate with high levels of integrity, transparency, and effectiveness. However, to bridge the gap, there needs to be a systemic overhaul that brings greater accountability and governance to the forefront. This could involve more stringent reporting requirements, third-party audits, or community oversight mechanisms, among other initiatives. Incorporating a discussion about these governance and accountability issues would certainly add depth to the critique of the nonprofit sector. It serves as a reminder that good intentions are not a substitute for good collective governance, and that even within structures built for social good, human fallibility and systemic weaknesses can compromise outcomes. Now let's return to explore conscious capitalism a little more. First and foremost, What do we mean when we talk about conscious capitalism? It's a modern economic philosophy that insists that businesses should serve not just their shareholders, but all stakeholders, which includes employees, communities, and the environment. It emphasizes four key principles, higher purpose, stakeholder orientation, conscious leadership, and conscious culture. Sounds commendable, right? But the devil is in the details. When we examine it against the backdrop of global economic realities like capital flight it becomes clear that conscious capitalism is not immune to many of the inherent contradictions and challenges of the global capitalist system capital flight is a phenomenon where investors rapidly pull their money out of a country often exacerbating economic instability this typically occurs during a crisis or when investors perceive better opportunities elsewhere Capital flight can be catastrophic for emerging economies, leading to devalued currency, inflation, unemployment, and even economic collapse. Now, how does conscious capitalism figure into this equation? In theory, a consciously capitalist enterprise should be committed to the well-being of all its stakeholders, including the communities in which it operates. In a world devoid of systemic pressures, such an entity would presumably resist participating in capital flight, aware of the harm it can cause. However, we're not living in an economic vacuum. Market-driven mechanisms and investor expectations often put enormous pressure on companies to prioritize short-term gains. Even if a firm wants to uphold its conscious principles, the structural realities of modern capitalism make it exceedingly difficult. In a sense, the system's architecture is often fundamentally at odds with the aspirational tenets of conscious capitalism. Consider Google's operations in Ireland as an illustrative example. Google employs a significant number of people in Ireland, but the company has also been criticized for utilizing the country's favorable tax laws to avoid paying higher taxes elsewhere. Now, suppose Ireland were to change its tax laws to capture more revenue from multinational corporations. If Google were to then pull out, that would constitute a form of capital flight, impacting local employment and potentially destabilizing the economy to some extent. Does Google's claim of being a responsible corporate citizen align with such behavior? Here, the tension between ethical commitments and economic imperatives is laid bare. While conscious capitalism may aim for a harmonious balance among its stakeholders, the broader financial ecosystem's compulsions, such as the pressure to deliver quarterly profits, can often make this balance untenable. When businesses opt for capital flight, they externalize the economic instability and social disruption burdening the very communities they claim to serve as stakeholders. In such a scenario, conscious capitalism risks becoming a cosmetic layer, unable to address the systemic issues inherent in the current economic model. Globalization has been a transformative force in the world economy, facilitating the flow of goods, services, and information across borders. Conscious capitalists argue that this is an opportunity to uplift marginalized communities by providing jobs and injecting capital into stagnant economies. However, there's a darker side to this coin. The seductive narrative of conscious capitalism often manifests in the outsourcing of labor to countries with lower living costs and laxer regulations. The argument here is twofold. It's cost-effective for the company and creates jobs in impoverished areas. However, this often leads to exploitative labor conditions under the guise of job creation. Critics argue that this model extracts value from vulnerable communities while offering only marginal benefits. Take fast fashion as an example. Brands like H&M and Zara have been under scrutiny for their labor practices in countries like Bangladesh, where factory conditions can be horrendous. While these companies may claim to provide valuable employment opportunities, activists point out that the wages are often not livable and the environmental impact is detrimental. Conscious capitalism also tends to proudly wear the cloak of environmental responsibility. This looks like sustainable product lines or corporate responsibility reports highlighting reduced carbon footprints. However, critics question how deep this commitment goes when offsetting one's carbon footprint can often mean purchasing carbon credits but continuing to pollute. The reach of global brands into local markets often dilutes indigenous cultures and undercuts local businesses that can't compete with the production scale and marketing budgets of multinational corporations. So while a global brand may bring modern amenities or foods into a new market, it often does so at the expense of a rich tapestry of local traditions and economies. One of the troubling aspects of conscious capitalism is the illusion of choice. For example, you might choose between organic And non-organic options at a supermarket believing you're making an ethical decision however both choices could be products of exploitative labor just with different labels to grasp the paradox inherent in this issue consider economist Milton Friedman's assertion that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits his view represents a contrast to the idea of conscious capitalism but serves as a reminder that the system still operates within the logic of maximizing shareholder value. Conscious capitalism and its intersection with globalization present a complex ethical landscape. While it portrays itself as a savior of sorts, bringing ethical commerce and opportunities to the far corners of the world, a critical lens reveals numerous imperfections and contradictions. It operates within the confines of a capitalist system aimed at profit maximization, but dresses itself in the language of ethics and sustainability. It brings us face-to-face with the limits of making ethical choices within a system that is inherently geared towards self-interest and exploitation. Both conscious capitalism and the nonprofit industrial complex emerge as intricate systems laden with contradictions. While their stated missions aim for ethical conduct and social justice, they invariably exist within the boundaries of a neoliberal framework. What we've seen is that they often perpetuate the very issues they claim to address, serving more as palliatives than actual cures for systemic woes. Their limitations are not just unfortunate byproducts, they are reflections of the very architecture of global capitalism and neoliberal governance, which prioritize profit and short term gains over substantive, equitable progress. We're not just questioning individual organizations or ideologies here, we're interrogating an entire ecosystem. As you navigate your roles as consumers, activists, or simply engaged citizens, it's crucial to disentangle these complexities. For therein lies the first step in crafting strategies that can break through these ironies, enabling us to envision and enact meaningful, systemic change. Having established a rich understanding of how co-optation manifests in capitalism, it's essential to explore the strategies we can use to resist these tactics and create counter-narratives that truly empower individuals and communities. This isn't merely about being more skeptical or fact-checking what we hear. This involves a fundamental reorientation of how we approach activism, alliances, and even our own individual actions. Grassroots movements are decentralized, collective actions driven by communities rather than established organizations or political entities. While the term grassroots suggests something elemental and foundational, it's important to recognize that these are highly organized, albeit flexible structures. They evolve organically, often emerging spontaneously in response to pressing social issues or systemic inequalities. They can involve various strategies like community organizing, awareness raising, and even nonviolent civil disobedience. Grassroots movements prioritize local needs and concerns rooted in the lived experiences of community members. Consensus building and collective decision making are central tenets, negating the traditional top-down hierarchical models. Many grassroots movements aim for long-term impact, which may involve creating systems that allow the community to sustain the movement's gains over time. Unlike bureaucratic systems, grassroots initiatives often have built-in accountability mechanisms, usually involving community discussions and evaluations. One of the strengths of grassroots movements is their ability to adapt rapidly to changing circumstances and community needs. Let's delve into the Zapatista movement for a comprehensive understanding. Emerging on January 1st, 1994, the very day that the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, came into effect, the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, EZLN, led an uprising in the southern Mexican state of Chiapas. It was no coincidence that they chose this date. NAFTA resulted in the removal of Article 27 from Mexico's constitution, which had previously guaranteed land reparations to indigenous populations. This was seen as a direct threat to indigenous ways of life, leading to the mobilization of the Zapatista movement. The movement is primarily composed of indigenous Mayan communities, reflecting their cultural norms and traditions in their resistance. Governance is executed through local assemblies, where every community member has a voice. These assemblies decide everything from land distribution to justice. They've developed their own autonomous economic systems, including agriculture and trade, which stand as alternatives to global capitalist structures. The Zapatistas have been savvy about using the internet and other tools to reach a global audience. They've built networks of solidarity with movements and organizations worldwide, helping to maintain both moral and financial support for their struggle. One often overlooked aspect is the role of women in the Zapatista movement. Women have been leaders and participants from the very beginning, and their women's revolutionary law was revolutionary in itself, providing women with rights many had never had before in their communities. Recognizing the power of education in shaping minds and futures, The Zapatistas have also established their own schooling systems, which are sensitive to their indigenous history, culture, and the needs of their community. By examining the Zapatistas, we gain not just an understanding of one movement's intricacies, but also a framework that can inform other grassroots initiatives. Their strategies for autonomous governance, community-led economic systems, and international networking offer valuable lessons for anyone interested in instigating change from the ground up. Direct action is a tactic employed by social movements and activists to bring about immediate change, often bypassing traditional forms of advocacy like negotiations or petitions. By intervening directly in a situation, whether that involves blocking roads, staging sit-ins, or even hacking websites, activists aim to make it impossible for authorities or institutions to continue business as usual. Direct action seeks to affect change quickly, directly challenging the status quo. Like grassroots movements, direct action often has a decentralized structure. Leadership is shared, and planning is usually collaborative. This approach can involve a wide range of methods, artistic interventions, civil disobedience, and technology-based actions, among others, to maximize visibility and impact. Although it aims to disrupt, direct action is usually nonviolent. Activists disrupt spaces and dialogues, aiming to cause discomfort but not harm. While it may appear spontaneous, effective direct action requires meticulous planning, understanding of local laws, and an evaluation of potential risks and consequences. Now let's focus on Occupy Wall Street, OWS, as a touchstone example. The movement sprang to life in September 2011, driven by a frustration with rising economic inequality in the United States, particularly the disproportionate influence of corporate power on democratic governance. Occupying Zuccotti Park wasn't just a stunt, it was a carefully considered strategy. By transforming a public space into a forum for discussion and community building, they drew attention to the ways in which public spaces, and by extension, public goods, have been usurped by private interests. Within the occupied spaces, decisions were made using consensus-based processes. This included general assemblies where attendees could participate in the movement's decision-making process. The slogan, We Are the 99% became a rallying cry that brought the issue of economic inequality to the forefront of public discourse, showing the power of a succinct message in driving home a complex issue. While the camp was eventually disbanded, the dialogue it sparked contributed to tangible policy discussions on issues like minimum wage, student debt, and even campaign finance reform. Inspired by OWS, Similar Occupy movements sprang up worldwide, from London to Hong Kong, each tailoring its protests to address local issues of economic inequality. Even after the tents were taken down, the concepts and language introduced by OWS continue to influence modern activism. It gave people the language and platform to discuss previously esoteric financial mechanisms like subprime lending and derivatives in understandable terms. OWS also had to navigate legal systems with varying degrees of support or repression from local authorities. Their experiences offer lessons on how to prepare for and respond to legal challenges when engaging in direct action. Understanding Occupy Wall Street helps us appreciate the transformative power of direct action. It's a tool that, when used correctly, can not only challenge but also dismantle entrenched systems, forcing society to reckon with uncomfortable truths and instigating change in a direct and immediate way. Let's shift our attention and look at the value of intersectionality. Intersectionality is a theoretical framework that helps us understand how various social identities, race, gender, class, etc., intersect at the individual level to create a web of systemic discrimination or privilege. Coined by Kimberlé Crenshaw in 1989, the term has evolved to encompass a more comprehensive understanding of how these intersecting social categories amplify or mitigate the societal advantages or disadvantages one experiences. No single social category, for example, race, gender, can fully encapsulate an individual's experience. Rather, various identities interact to create a unique lived experience. Discrimination or privilege in one area often amplifies the effects in another. For example, a Black woman faces not only racial but also gender discrimination, and these factors often compound each other. Intersectionality is not a simple addition of various social identities, but involves complex interactions that can both mitigate and amplify systemic discrimination or privilege. Intersectionality has relevance both in local contexts, like a neighborhood or organization, and in broader societal and even global contexts. Social categories and their intersections are not static, but evolve over time due to various socio-political changes. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan, serves as a textbook case of intersectionality. The crisis began in 2014 when, in a cost-saving measure, the city switched its water supply source. The poorly treated water led to lead contamination, posing severe health risks. At the surface level, Flint is an environmental issue, but dig a bit deeper and you find threads of racial and economic injustices intricately woven into the fabric of this crisis. Flint is a predominantly African-American community. Institutional neglect and environmental racism play a significant role in how the crisis unfolded and was subsequently managed or mismanaged. Economic decline and poverty in Flint made it impossible for many residents to simply pick up and leave when the crisis struck. Their economic situation trapped them in a hazardous environment. The residents' lack of political power, partly due to their racial and economic status, contributed to the delayed response and inadequate solutions provided by the authorities. The crisis resulted in significant health issues for the residents, which are exacerbated by lack of access to quality health care a problem that again intersects with race and economic status. Often the story was framed merely as an environmental issue, erasing the racial and economic factors at play. This is a clear example of why an intersectional lens is crucial for a complete understanding of any social issue. Community organizers in Flint have been working not just to address the water crisis, but also to tackle the underlying systemic issues. Their approach is inherently intersectional, targeting not just the environmental but also the racial and economic aspects of the crisis. Understanding the Flint water crisis through an intersectional lens allows us to see it not just as a singular environmental catastrophe, but as a complex interplay of systemic issues that require a multifaceted response. By integrating an intersectional perspective into our analyses and activism, we can develop more effective strategies for social change. This approach allows us to see the fuller picture, acknowledging and tackling the complex, interwoven social, economic, and institutional factors that perpetuate inequality and injustice. Now let's explore community-owned initiatives. Community-owned initiatives are organizational models that emphasize communal ownership and participatory decision-making. Unlike traditional capitalist enterprises, where ownership and control are concentrated in the hands of a few, these models distribute ownership across members of the community or workers. This can manifest in various forms, such as worker cooperatives, community land trusts, or local renewable energy projects. Decision-making is done collectively, often using democratic methods like voting to ensure everyone has a say. Such initiatives are often responsive to the needs of the local community, because the stakeholders are usually from that community. Economic benefits, like profits or resources, are distributed more evenly among participants. These initiatives often aim for sustainable development, looking beyond short-term profits to the long-term well-being of the community and environment. Beyond just profits, these models aim to address broader issues like unemployment, inequality, and community development. The Mondragon Corporation in the Basque region of Spain serves as a stellar example of how community-owned initiatives can be both economically viable and socially equitable. Founded in 1956 by a Catholic priest and a group of engineers in the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War, the Mondragon Corporation sought to address unemployment and social disparities. It's not a small operation. Employing over 80,000 people, it is one of the largest cooperative enterprises globally every worker is a shareholder with a say in the company's direction. This level of empowerment is atypical in conventional corporate structures. Mondragon's internal wage ratio is far more equitable than in standard corporations. The highest paid worker doesn't earn more than six to eight times the lowest paid worker. Mondragon is not limited to one sector. It's involved in finance, retail, industrial manufacturing, and even education, showcasing the model's versatility. Mondragon runs its own university and vocational training programs, thus ensuring a skilled and educated workforce, which is a fundamental aspect of its success. While deeply rooted in the Basque community, Mondragon has also expanded globally, proving that the community-based model can scale beyond local boundaries. One of the most fascinating aspects of Mondragon is its resilience. Even during economic downturns, instead of layoffs, they often retrain and relocate workers to other sectors within the Federation. It's not a utopia. Mondragon faces challenges like any other enterprise, such as market competition and global economic pressures. However, its structure equips it to navigate these challenges in a more equitable way. By closely examining Mondragon, we realize that community-owned initiatives are not just idealistic endeavors, but practical alternatives to traditional capitalist models. They offer pathways for creating more equitable, democratic, and sustainable communities, demonstrating what's possible when people come together to collectively manage resources and make decisions. Now let's explore how media literacy helps fight co-optation. Media literacy refers to the suite of skills required to critically evaluate and interpret media messages. It's not just about recognizing false news stories. It's a holistic approach that includes understanding the motivations behind a message, the techniques used to convey it, and its social or cultural implications. Key components of media literacy include Critical thinking, the ability to question the information presented rather than accepting it at face value. Source evaluation, understanding where the information is coming from and how credible that source is. Message analysis, discerning what techniques are being used to convey the message, be it emotional appeal, logical reasoning, or other rhetorical devices. Contextual understanding, recognizing how sociopolitical conditions can shape media messages active engagement, not just passively consuming media, but discussing, sharing, and even producing your own media as a way to contribute to the dialogue. The Media Manipulation Casebook serves as an invaluable resource in the field of media literacy. This project aims to educate the public about the various forms of media manipulation that exist, from disinformation campaigns to viral hoaxes. It offers concrete examples of manipulation, breaking down how they were executed and their subsequent impact. The casebook is not merely an academic exercise. It aims to make its findings accessible, providing tools like articles, checklists, and guides for the public. It integrates insights from journalism, sociology, information science, and other disciplines to provide a well-rounded understanding of media manipulation. In an age where information can be weaponized, this project is more crucial than ever. It helps to create an informed citizenry that can sift through the noise and make decisions based on credible information. Media manipulation is not confined to any single country or culture. The casebook acknowledges this by including international instances of manipulation. Given the shift to digital media, the project also delves into how algorithms and social media platforms can be exploited to spread misinformation. One of the strongest features is that it is freely accessible, thus democratizing knowledge and making it available to anyone interested in understanding the landscape of media manipulation. By examining a tool like the Media Manipulation Casebook, we realize the indispensable role of media literacy in today's world. It's not just a skill, it's a necessity. As information becomes more complex and harder to navigate, media literacy stands as a vital tool for empowering individuals to make sense of the world around them. There is a link in this episode's description and at a Radical Guide. What are counter-narratives and why are they important? Counter-narratives are stories, viewpoints, or frames that challenge established narratives often propagated by mainstream media or authority figures. They're not just opinions, they are fully fleshed out frameworks that offer a contrasting perspective on events, policies, or social dynamics. The significance of counter-narratives lies in their ability to disrupt monolithic storytelling, By presenting a contrasting narrative, they break the monopoly of a single viewpoint. Amplify marginalized voices. They give a platform to groups and individuals who are often sidelined in mainstream narratives. Drive change. Counter narratives can influence public perception and policy, thereby contributing to societal change. Let's talk about citizen journalism in places like Syria and Myanmar. The context in these countries is one of authoritarian regimes, political conflict, and often humanitarian crises. Here, state controlled media act more as propaganda machines than purveyors of factual information. Key features of citizen journalism in Syria and Myanmar direct reporting. Ordinary people, not trained journalists, use tools at their disposal like smartphones to report incidents. Social media leverage. Platforms like Twitter and YouTube become broadcasting channels, allowing for real-time updates. Challenging state narratives. By reporting events as they happen, these citizen journalists question the official accounts offered by state-controlled media. International attention. Because of their grassroots nature, these reports often capture the attention of international organizations and media outlets, amplifying their reach. Risks and sacrifices. Citizen journalists often risk their lives to capture and share these counter-narratives. Their work is a form of resistance against oppressive regimes, and it carries personal and collective stakes. Actionable strategy. Your smartphone is a tool for change recording events. Use your smartphone camera to capture events as they happen. It could be a protest, an incident of police brutality, or a community assembly. Fact-based sharing. Use platforms like Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to share these recordings, but also ensure they are contextualized with factual data and sources. Community engagement. Don't just post, engage. Respond to comments, share other relevant content, and involve yourself in discussions that matter. Collaboration. Seek out others who are contributing to the same cause. Your voice gains more traction when part of a collective. Safety measures. Given that counter-narrative activities often challenge powerful structures, consider using encrypted communication and data storage methods to protect yourself. In essence, counter-narratives in alternative media are not just supplementary to mainstream narratives, they are fundamentally transformative. They change the way we perceive issues, engage with facts, and most importantly, they arm us with alternative viewpoints that enrich our understanding and embolden our actions. It's not merely about defying the status quo, It's about rewriting the script. In our journey to dissect resistance movements and their uneasy relationship with capitalism, one theme consistently emerges, the lurking shadow of co-optation. This is not a theoretical or fringe issue. The threat is real, immediate, and pervasive. It manifests when the transformative potentials of movements, be they aimed at racial justice, gender equality, or environmental sustainability, are diluted, commercialized, and ultimately neutered what was once a collective scream against systemic injustice often becomes reduced to consumable symbols and catchphrases bereft of their original revolutionary intent understanding co-optation is not merely about knowing its dictionary definition. It's about recognizing its nuances and subtleties. The act of co-optation in the capitalist context is insidious because it operates on multiple fronts. It capitalizes on ignorance and preys on apathy. Moreover, It taps into the consumerist tendencies we all harbor, urging us to buy into change, as if it's just another product on the shelf. This renders the capitalist machinery not just an opponent, but a highly adaptive entity that mutates to absorb elements of resistance, rendering them ineffectual in the long term. The phrase eternal vigilance is the price of liberty takes on urgent relevance here. Our resistance against co-optation cannot be a one-time action. It has to be a sustained commitment to education, to community-based decision-making, and to systemic understanding. Without this trinity, we risk falling into the very traps we aim to dismantle. A thriving community of activists should be characterized by continuous learning and relearning, by questioning not just the world but ourselves, and by unlearning the capitalist values that are often deeply ingrained in our psyche. Only through such rigorous intellectual and ethical exercises can we build and maintain movements that withstand the pressures of capitalist co-optation. Co-optation is not merely a term or a tactic, it represents a chronic challenge to the essence and soul of activism. As such, confronting it is not an event, but a process, not an act, but a perpetual commitment. Every generation has its unique forms of resistance and consequently faces unique forms of co-optation. However, the underlying principles of resistance remain steadfast. Autonomy, collective action, and an unwavering commitment to justice." Our struggle against co-optation is an unending one. It's a battle that takes place not just in protests on the streets or debates in academia, but in the everyday choices we make. What to buy, what to read, how to engage with our communities, and how to think critically about the world around us. It's about honing our ability to spot a commodified form of resistance, call it out, and offer alternatives that are genuinely transformative. By acknowledging and confronting the reality of co-optation, We bolster our ability to imagine and construct a world that is genuinely equitable, a world where movements for justice are not sidetracked, but instead are accelerated by the collective power of informed, committed individuals. And so the struggle continues and must continue if we are to progress beyond the limitations of the present into a future where the capitalist co-optation of resistance is a relic of the past, rather than the modus operandi. Radical education, a better future what we really need not rooted in capitalism or supremacy today's focus is on waka whistleblowers activists and communities alliance an australian rooted grassroots community alliance with global reach born in 2010 as the wikileaks australian citizens alliance WACA emerged from the outrage against the Australian government's antagonistic stance toward WikiLeaks, whistleblowers like Julian Assange, and the broader attempts to criminalize these essential acts of democratic oversight. Come 2014, WACA rebranded, a move that signaled a widening of its scope. It wasn't just about WikiLeaks or Assange anymore. It was about taking on the whole array of issues that intersect with social justice, from corporate malfeasance to government surveillance, as unmasked by whistleblower Edward Snowden. This isn't just a name change. It's a philosophical expansion, an evolution that nods to the growing complexity of the battleground of civil rights and social justice. Composed of volunteers both in Australia and globally, WACA operates with a deep belief in community action. It doesn't just criticize, it does. From campaigning for transparency to holding power structures accountable, WACA provides a multifaceted platform for activism. They put forward the idea that democracy isn't just a noun, it's a verb. Democracy is action, and as WACA puts it, it is not a spectator sport. The organization zeroes in on some of the most pressing issues we face today. The military-industrial complex, the corporate stranglehold on democracy, cyber militarization, and the environmental catastrophe we're hurtling toward. They emphasize the need for active resistance, but also for constructive alternatives. In their own words, resistance is useless without an alternative model for our future. Waka doesn't stop at mere talk. It serves as an active platform for change. They run campaigns, host events, and offer logistical support for various community groups. They also act as an independent media outlet, which is crucial in an age where mainstream media often dances to the tunes of the powerful. Their work is particularly pertinent when it comes to supporting whistleblowers and citizen journalists who often risk it all to break away from the sanitized narratives we're fed. By doing so, they offer a counter-narrative and alternative framework for understanding the world and for imagining what could be possible if communities acted in concert to demand their rights. They believe, much like we do here at A Radical Podcast, that the impetus for change must come from the grassroots level, From communities that understand the intricacies of their specific struggles, but can also see the broader picture of a global fight for justice, sustainability, and peace. In conclusion, WACA stands as a vital ally for anyone committed to challenging the myriad forms of institutionalized injustice we face today. Their multifaceted approach, educate, advocate, activate, agitate, echoes the very tenets we believe in fostering a holistic understanding of what it means to be active participants in shaping the world we live in. They remind us that confronting the status quo isn't merely about being against something. It's about being for a world that respects the dignity of every human being and the planet we all call home. As we continue through the remainder of this episode, let these insights serve as a backdrop, helping us frame the issues, challenges, and potential solutions that lie ahead. Indeed, in times where silencing dissent has become a refined art, organizations like WACA are the brushstrokes in a counter-narrative that says, enough, we will not be silenced, we will not be passive, we will act. For those of you who are intrigued by the multifaceted activism of WACA and are interested in diving deeper into their initiatives and philosophies, you can learn more about them on our website. Just head over to aradicalguide.com where you'll find a wealth of resources and links connecting you to this vital organization. This is an excellent opportunity to extend your understanding and perhaps even find avenues for your own engagement and activism. Their work dovetails beautifully with many of the issues we explore here, so it's a natural extension of the conversation we're fostering. So as we navigate through the rest of this episode, with its twists and turns in examining power dynamics, systemic failures, and pathways to resistance, keep Waxa in mind. Remember, your role in this struggle isn't just that of a listener, it's that of a potential actor in a grander play of societal change. Yes. Let's go. In today's episode, we've journeyed across a varied landscape of urgent issues and compelling narratives. We started off with the an Anarchist and Radical News segment, where we discussed Rebecca Spear Cole's illuminating article, Greenwashing Turbocharged, published in The Ecologist. We looked beyond the veneer of corporate social responsibility to uncover the duplicitous tactics of major oil companies like Shell and BP. The subject challenged us to be discerning consumers of information and to hold these corporate giants accountable for their role in environmental degradation. From there, we moved to the resistance around the world segment, examining a topic that, while often overlooked, is deeply relevant, the co-optation of resistance movements by capitalist forces. We discussed how movements for social change can find their agendas skewed, diluted, or even entirely redefined by capitalist influences. This underscored the necessity for grassroots organizations to maintain their autonomy and ideological clarity as they push for societal transformation. Then we segued into our About a Radical Guide segment, focusing on WACA, or the whistleblowers, activists, and communities alliance. This Australian-based initiative exemplifies the type of community-led activism that's crucial in a world increasingly hostile to dissent. WASIA isn't just an organization. It's a catalyst for various forms of activism, educating, advocating, activating, and agitating for change on issues as diverse as government transparency, civil liberties, and environmental justice. Their approach resonates with us because, like WACA, we at A Radical Guide believe that activism needs to be multifaceted to combat the many-headed hydra of systemic injustice. As you reflect on these varied discussions, remember that the information is not just for passive consumption. It's a call to action. The purpose of bringing these topics to the forefront is to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to make a difference, however large or small, in your own communities. So how can you become an active part of this broader tapestry of resistance and change? Well, by contributing to a radical guide, of course. You can add locations to our map that signify historical or current arenas of resistance, enriching our collective understanding of where change is happening. You can also financially support our efforts, enabling us to dig deeper into issues that matter and to bring more voices into this critical dialogue. In closing, thank you for joining us on this intellectual and emotional journey today head over to aradicalguide.com to continue this rich exploration and find ways to engage. We've covered a lot, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. We need your questions, your enthusiasm, and yes, your active participation to keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Until next time, keep resisting, keep questioning, And keep making your voices heard. Yeah, talking freedom and liberation worldwide, not just only for the nation. A radical guide. It's time to make changes, bringing interviews and radical education. Yeah, yeah, a better future what we really need, not rooted in capitalism or supremacy. Yeah, yeah, trust you don't want to miss it. We bring the truth right to you, the past, present, and future. Let's go. A A radical guide. That's what this is. Highlighting the diverse world of resistance. Let's go.